Young Goodman Brown by Nathaniel Hawthorne Young Goodman Brown came forth at sunset into the street at Salem Village, but put his head back after crossing the threshold to exchange a parting kiss with his young wife. And Faith, as the wife was aptly named, thrust her own pretty head into the street, letting the wind play with the pink ribbons of her cap while she called to Goodman Brown. Dearest heart, whispered she softly and rather sadly when her lips were close to his ear, pretty put off your journey until sunrise and sleep in your own bed tonight. A lone woman is troubled with such dreams and such thoughts that she's afeard of herself sometimes. Pray tarry with me this night, dear husband, of all nights in the year. My love and my faith, replied young Goodman Brown, of all nights in the year, this one night must I tarry away from thee. My journey, as thou callest it, forth and back again, must needs be done twixt now and sunrise. What, my sweet pretty wife, dost thou doubt me already? And we, but three months married. Then God bless you, said Faith, with the pink ribbons, and may you find all well when you come back. Amen, cried Goodman Brown. Say thy prayers, dear Faith, and go to bed at dusk, and no harm will come to thee. So they parted, and the young man pursued his way until, being about to turn the corner by the meeting house, he looked back and saw the head of Faith still peeping after him with a melancholy air in spite of her pink ribbons. Poor little Faith, thought he, for his heart smote him. What a wretch am I to leave her on such an errand. She talks of dreams, too. Methought, as she spoke, there was trouble in her face as if a dream had warned her what work is to be done tonight. But no, no, t'would kill her to think of it. Well, she's a blessed angel on earth, and after this one night, I'll cling to her skirts and follow her to heaven. With this excellent resolve for the future, Goodman Brown felt himself justified in making more haste on his present evil purpose. He had taken a dreary road, darkened by all the gloomiest trees of the forest, which barely stood aside to let the narrow path creep through and closed immediately behind. It was all as lonely as could be, and there is this peculiarity in such a solitude, that the traveler knows not who may be concealed by the innumerable trunks and the thick boughs overhead, so that with lonely footsteps he may yet be passing through an unseen multitude. There may be a devilish Indian behind every tree, said Goodman Brown to himself, and he glanced fearfully behind him as he added, What if the devil himself should be at my very elbow? His head being turned, he passed the crook of the road, and looking forward again, beheld the figure of a man in grave and decent attire seated at the foot of an old tree. He arose at Goodman Brown's approach and walked onward side by side with him. You're late, Goodman Brown, said he. The clock of the old south was striking as I came through Boston, and that is full fifteen minutes agone. Faith kept me back a while, replied the young man with a tremor in his voice, caused by the sudden appearance of his companion, though not wholly unexpected. It was now deep dusk in the forest, and deepest in that part of it where these two were journeying. As nearly as could be discerned, the second traveler was about fifty years old, apparently in the same rank of life as Goodman Brown and bearing a considerable resemblance to him, though perhaps more in expression than features. Still, they might have been taken for father and son, and yet 
Though the elder person was as simply clad as the younger, and as simple in manner too, he had an indescribable air of one who knew the world, and who would not have felt abashed at the governor's dinner table or in King William's court, were it possible that his affairs should call him thither. But the only thing about him that could be fixed upon as remarkable was his staff, which bore the likeness of a great black snake, so curiously wrought that it might almost be seen to twist and wriggle itself like a living serpent. This, of course, must have been an ocular deception, assisted by the uncertain light. Come, Goodman Brown, cried his fellow traveler. This is a dull place for the beginning of a journey. Take my staff, if you are so soon weary. Friend, said the other, exchanging his slow pace for a full stop. Having kept covenant by meeting thee here, it is my purpose now to return whence I came. I have scruples touching the matter that thou wotst of. Sayest thou so, replied he of the serpent, smiling apart. Let us walk on, nevertheless, reasoning as we go. And if I convince thee not, thou shalt turn back. We are but a little way into the forest yet. Too far, too far, exclaimed the goodman, unconsciously resuming his walk. My father never went into the woods on such an errand, nor his father before him. We have been a race of honest men and good Christians since the days of the martyrs. And shall I be the first of the name of Brown that ever took this path and kept such company, thou wouldst say, observed the elder person, interpreting his pause. Well said, Goodman Brown. I have been as well acquainted with your family as with ever one amongst the Puritans, and that's no trifle to say. I helped your grandfather, the constable, when he lashed the Quaker woman so smartly through the streets of Salem. And it was I that brought your father a pitch-pine knot, kindled at my own hearth, to set fire to an Indian village in King Philip's war. They were my good friends, both, and many a pleasant walk we have had along this path, and returned merrily after midnight. I would fain be friends with you, for their sake. If it be as thou sayest, replied Goodman Brown, I marvel they never spoke of these matters, or verily, I marvel not, seeing that the least rumor of the sort would have driven them from New England. We are a people of prayer and good works to boot, and abide no such wickedness. Wickedness or not, said the traveler with the twisted staff, I have a very general acquaintance here in New England. The deacons of many a church have drunk the communion wine with me. The select men of diverse towns make me their chairman, and a majority of the great and general court are firm supporters of my interest. The governor and I, too. <laughs> but these are state secrets. Can this be so? cried Goodman Brown with a stare of amazement at his undisturbed companion. How be it I have nothing to do with the governor and council. They have their own ways and are no rule for a simple husbandman like me. But were I to go on with thee, how should I meet the eye of that good old man, our minister at Salem Village? Oh, his voice would make me tremble both Sabbath day and lecture day. Thus far the elder traveler had listened with due gravity, but now burst into a fit of irrepressible mirth, shaking himself so violently that his snake-like staff actually seemed to wriggle in sympathy. Ha, 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 shouted he again and again, then composing himself. Well, go on, Goodman Brown, go on. But prithee, don't kill me with laughing. Well then, to end the matter at once, said Goodman Brown, considerably nettled, there is my wife, Faith. It would break her dear little heart, and I'd rather break my own. Nay, if that be the case, answered the other, 
E'en go thy ways, Goodman Brown. I would not for twenty old women like the one hobbling before us that faith should come to any harm. As he spoke, he pointed his staff at a female figure on the path, in whom Goodman Brown recognized a very pious and exemplary dame who had taught him his catechism in youth and was still his moral and spiritual adviser, jointly with the minister and Deacon Gookin. A marvel truly that Goody Cloy should be so far into the wilderness at nightfall, said he. But with your leave, friend, I shall take a cut through the woods until we have left this Christian woman behind. Being a stranger to you, she might ask whom I was consorting with and whither I was going. Be it so, said his fellow traveller, betake thee to the woods and let me keep the path. Accordingly, the young man turned aside, but took care to watch his companion, who advanced softly along the road until he had come within a staff's length of the old dame. She, meanwhile, was making the best of her way with singular speed for so aged a woman, and mumbling some indistinct words, a prayer, doubtless, as she went. The traveller put forth his staff and touched her withered neck with what seemed the serpent's tail. The devil, screamed the pious old lady. Then Goody Cloys knows her old friend, observed the traveller, confronting her and leaning on his riding stick. Ah, forsooth, and it is your worship indeed, cried the good dame. Yea, truly it is, and in the very image of my old gossip Goodman Brown grandfather of the silly fellow that now is, but would your worship believe it, my broomstick hath strangely disappeared, stolen, as I suspect, by that unhanged witch Goody Cory, and that too when I was all anointed with the juice of small edge and sink foil and wolfsbane. Mingled with fine wheat and the fat of a newborn babe, said the shape of old Goodman Brown. Ah, your worship knows the recipe, cried the old lady, cackling aloud. So, as I was saying, being all ready for the meeting and no horse to ride on, I made up my mind to foot it, for they tell me there is a nice young man to be taken into communion tonight. But now your good worship will lend me your arm, and we shall be there in a twinkling. That can hardly be, answered her friend. I may not spare you my arm, goody cloys. But here is my staff, if you will. So saying, he threw it down at her feet, where perhaps it assumed life, being one of the rods which its owner had formerly lent to the Egyptian magi. Of this fact, however, Goodman Brown could not take cognizance. He had cast up his eyes in astonishment, and looking down again, beheld neither goody cloys nor the serpentine staff, but his fellow traveller, alone, who waited for him as calmly as if nothing had happened. That old woman taught me my catechism, said the young man, and there was a world of meaning in this simple comment. They continued to walk onward, while the elder traveller exhorted his companion to make good speed and persevere in the path discoursing so aptly that his arguments seemed rather to spring up in the bosom of his auditor than to be suggested by himself. As they went, he plucked a branch of maple to serve for a walking stick and began to strip it of the twigs and little boughs which were wet with evening dew. The moment his fingers touched them, they became strangely withered and dried up as with a weak sunshine. Thus the pair proceeded, at a good free pace, until suddenly, in a gloomy hollow of the road, Goodman Brown sat himself down on the stump of a tree and refused to go any farther. Friend, said he stubbornly, my, my mind is made up. Not another step will I budge on this errand. What if a wretched old woman do choose to go to the devil when I thought she was going to heaven? Is there any reason why I should quit my dear faith and go after her? 
He will think better of this by and by, said his acquaintance composedly. Sit here and rest yourself a while. And when you feel like moving again, there is my staff to help you along. Without more words, he threw his companion the maple stick and was as speedily out of sight as if he had vanished into the deepening gloom. The young man, sat a few moments by the roadside, applauding himself greatly and thinking with how clear a conscience he should meet the minister in his morning walk, nor shrink from the eye of good old Deacon Gookin. And what calm sleep would be his that very night, which was to have been spent so wickedly, but so purely and sweetly now, in the arms of faith. Amidst these pleasant and praiseworthy meditations, Goodman Brown heard the tramp of horses along the road, and deemed it advisable to conceal himself within the verge of the forest, conscious of the guilty purpose that had brought him thither, though now so happily turned from it. On came the hoof-tramps and the voices of the riders, two grave old voices conversing soberly as they drew near. These mingled sounds appeared to pass along the road within a few yards of the young man's hiding-place, but owing doubtless to the depth of the gloom at that particular spot, neither the travellers nor their steeds were visible. Though their figures brushed the small boughs by the wayside, it could not be seen that they intercepted, even for a moment, the faint gleam from the strip of bright sky athwart, which they must have passed. Goodman Brown alternately crouched and stood on tiptoe, pulling aside the branches and thrusting forth his head as far as he durst, without discerning so much as a shadow. It vexed him the more, because he could have sworn, were such a thing possible, that he recognized the voices of the minister and Deacon Gookin, jogging along quietly as they were wont to do, when bound to some ordination or ecclesiastical council. While yet within hearing, one of the riders stooped to pluck a switch. Of the two, reverend sir, said the voice like the deacons, I had rather miss an ordination dinner than tonight's meeting. They tell me that some of our community are to be there from Falmouth and beyond, and others from Connecticut and Rhode Island, besides several of the Indian powwows, who, after their fashion, know almost as much deviltry as the best of us. Moreover, there is a goodly young woman to be taken in the communion. Mighty well, Deacon Gookin, replied the solemn old tones of the minister. Spur up, or we shall be late. Nothing can be done, you know, until I get on the ground. The hoofs clattered again, and the voices, talking so strangely in the empty air, passed on through the forest, where no church had ever been gathered, or solitary Christian prayed. Whither, then, could these holy men be journeying so deep into the heathen wilderness? Young Goodman Brown caught hold of a tree for support, being ready to sink on the ground, faint and overburdened with the heavy sickness of his heart. He looked up to the sky, doubting whether there really was a heaven above him. Yet there was the blue arch and the stars brightening in it, with heaven above and faith below, I will yet stand firm against the devil, cried Goodman Brown. While he still gazed upward into the deep arch of the firmament and had lifted his hands to pray, a cloud, though no wind was stirring, hurried across the zenith and hid the brightening stars. The blue sky was still visible except directly overhead where this black mass of cloud was sweeping swiftly northward. Aloft in the air, as if from the depths of the cloud, came a confused and doubtful sound of voices. Once, the listener fancied that he could distinguish the accents of townspeople of his own. 
men and women, both pious and ungodly, many of whom he had met at the communion table and had seen others rioting at the tavern. The next moment, so indistinct were the sounds, he doubted whether he had heard aught but the murmur of the old forest whispering without a wind. Then came a stronger swell of those familiar tones, heard daily in the sunshine at Salem Village, but never until now from a cloud of night. There was the voice of a young woman, uttering lamentations, yet with an uncertain sorrow, and entreating for some favor, which, perhaps, it would grieve her to obtain. And all the unseen multitude, both saints and sinners, seemed to encourage her onward. Faith, shouted Goodman Brown, in a voice of agony and desperation, and the echoes of the forest mocked him, crying, Faith, faith, as if bewildered wretches were seeking her all through the wilderness. The cry of grief, rage, and terror was yet piercing the night when the unhappy husband held his breath for a response. There was a scream, drowned immediately in a louder murmur of voices, fading into far-off laughter as the dark clouds swept away, leaving the clear and silent sky above Goodman Brown. But something fluttered lightly down through the air and caught on the branch of a tree. The young man seized it and beheld a pink ribbon. My faith is gone, cried he after one stupefied moment. There is no good on earth, and sin is but a name. Come, devil, for to thee is this world given. And maddened with despair, so that he laughed loud and long, did Goodman Brown grasp his staff and set forth again, at such a rate that he seemed to fly along the forest path, rather than to walk or run. The road grew wilder and drearier, and more faintly traced, and vanished at length, leaving him in the heart of the dark wilderness still rushing onward with the instinct that guides mortal men to evil. The whole forest was peopled with frightful sounds, the creaking of the trees, the howling of the wild beasts, and the yell of Indians while sometimes the wind tolled like a distant church bell and sometimes gave a broad roar around the traveler as if all nature were laughing him to scorn. But he was himself the chief horror of the scene and shrank not from its other horrors. Ha ha ha, roared Goodman Brown when the wind laughed at him. Let us hear which will laugh loudest. Think not to frighten me with your deviltry. Come, witch, come, wizard, come, Indian powwow, come, devil himself, and here comes Goodman Brown. You may as well fear him as he fear you. In truth, all through the haunted forest, there could be nothing more frightful than the figure of Goodman Brown. On he flew among the black pines, brandishing his staff with frenzied gestures, now giving vent to an inspiration of horrid blasphemy, now shouting forth such laughter as set all the echoes of the forest laughing like demons around him. The fiend in his own shape is less hideous than when he rages in the breast of a man. Thus sped the demoniac on his course, until, quivering among the trees, he saw a red light before him as when the felled trunks and branches of a clearing have been set on fire and throw up their lurid blaze against the sky at the hour of midnight. He paused in a lull of the tempest that had driven him onward and heard the swell of what seemed a hymn rolling solemnly from a distance with the weight of many voices. He knew the tune. It was a familiar one in the choir of the village meeting house. The verse died heavily away and was lengthened by a chorus, not of human voices, 
but of all the sounds of the benighted wilderness pealing in awful harmony together. Goodman Brown cried out, and his cry was lost to his own ear by its unison with the cry of the desert. In the interval of silence, he stole forward until the light glared full upon his eyes. At one extremity of an open space hemmed in by the dark wall of the forest arose a rock bearing some rude natural resemblance either to an altar or a pulpit and surrounded by four blazing pines, their tops aflame, their stems untouched like candles at an evening meeting. The mass of foliage that had overgrown the summit of the rock was all on fire, blazing high into the night and fitfully illuminating the whole field. Each pendant twig and leafy festoon was in a blaze. As the red light arose and fell, a numerous congregation alternately shone forth, then disappeared in shadow, and again grew, as it were, out of the darkness, peopling the heart of the solitary woods at once. A grave and dark-clad company, quoth Goodman Brown. In truth, they were such. Among them, quivering to and fro between gloom and splendor, appeared faces that would be seen next day at the council board of the province, and others which Sabbath after Sabbath look devoutly heavenward and benignantly over the crowded pews from the holiest pulpits in the land. Some affirmed that the lady of the governor was there. At least, there were high dames well known to her, and wives of honored husbands and widows, a great multitude and ancient maidens all of excellent repute, and fair young girls who trembled lest their mothers should espy them. Either the sudden gleams of light flashing over the obscure field bedazzled Goodman Brown, or he recognized the score of the church members of Salem Village, famous for their especial sanctity. Good old Deacon Gookin had arrived and waited at the skirts of that venerable saint, his revered pastor. But, irreverently consorting with these grave, reputable, and pious people, these elders of the church, these chaste dames and dewy virgins, there were men of dissolute lives, and women of spotted fame, wretches given over to all mean and filthy vice, and suspected even of horrid crimes. It was strange to see that the good shrank not from the wicked, nor were the sinners abashed by the saints. Scattered also among their pale-faced enemies were the Indian priests, or powwows, who had often scared their native forest with more hideous incantations than any known to English witchcraft. But where is faith? thought Goodman Brown. And... As hope came into his heart, he trembled. Another verse of the hymn arose, a slow and mournful strain, such as the pious love, but joined to words which expressed all that our nature can conceive of sin and darkly hinted at far more. Unfathomable to mere mortals is the lure of fiends. Verse after verse was sung, and still the chorus of the desert swelled between like the deepest tone of a mighty organ, and with the final peal of that dreadful anthem there came a sound, as if the roaring wind, the rushing streams, the howling beasts, and every other voice of the unconcerted wilderness were mingling and according with the voice of guilty man in a homage to the Prince of All. The four blazing pines threw up a loftier flame, and obscurely discovered shapes and visages of horror on the smoke wreaths above the impious assembly. At the same moment, the fire on the rock shot redly forth, and formed a glowing arch above its base, where now appeared a figure. With reverence be it spoken, the figure bore no slight similitude, both in garb and manner, to some grave divine of the New England churches. 
Bring forth the converts, cried a voice that echoed through the field and rolled into the forest. At the word, Goodman Brown stepped forth from the shadow of the trees and approached the congregation with whom he felt a loathful brotherhood by the sympathy of all that was wicked in his heart. He could have well nigh sworn that the shape of his own dead father beckoned him to advance, looking downward from a smoke wreath, while a woman with dim features of despair threw out her hand to warn him back. Was it his mother? But he had no power to retreat one step, nor to resist, even in thought, when the minister and good old Deacon Gookin seized his arms and led him to the blazing rock. Thither came also the slender form of a veiled female, led between Goody Cloys, that pious teacher of the catechism, and Martha Carrier, who had received the devil's promise to be queen of hell. A rampant hag was she, and there stood the proselytes beneath the canopy of fire. Welcome, my children, said the dark figure, to the communion of your race. Ye have found thus young your nature and your destiny. My children, look behind you. They turned, and flashing forth as it were in a sheet of flame, the fiend worshippers were seen. The smile of welcome gleamed darkly on every visage. There, resumed the sable form, are all whom ye have reverenced from youth. Ye deem them holier than yourselves, and shrank from your own sin, contrasting it with their lives of righteousness and prayerful aspirations heavenward. Yet here are they all in my worshipping assembly. This night it shall be granted to you to know their secret deeds. How hoary-bearded elders of the church have whispered wanton words to the young maids of their households. How many a woman, eager for widow's weeds, has given her husband a drink at bedtime and let him sleep, his last sleep, on her bosom. How beardless youths have made haste to inherit their father's wealth. And how fair damsels, blush not, sweet ones, have dug little graves in the garden and bidden me, the sole guest, to an infant's funeral. By the sympathy of your human hearts for sin, ye shall send out all the places, whether in church, bedchamber, street, field, or forest, where crime has been committed, and shall exult to behold the whole earth one stain of guilt, one mighty blood spot. Far more than this, it shall be yours to penetrate in every bosom the deep mystery of sin, the fountain of all wicked arts, and which inexhaustibly supplies more evil impulses than human power then my power at its utmost can make manifest in deeds. And now, my children, look upon each other. They did so, and by the blaze of the hell-kindled torches, the wretched man beheld his faith, and the wife, her husband, trembling before that unhallowed altar. Lo, there ye stand, my children, said the figure in a deep, and solemn tone, almost sad with its despairing awfulness, as if his once angelic nature could yet mourn for our miserable race. Depending upon one another's hearts, he had still hoped that virtue were not all a dream. Now are ye undeceived. Evil is the nature of mankind. Evil must be your only happiness. Welcome again, my children, to the communion of your race. Welcome, repeated the fiend worshippers in one cry of despair and triumph. And there they stood, the only pair, as it seemed, who were yet hesitating on the verge of wickedness in this dark world. A basin was hollowed, naturally, 
in the rock? Did it contain water reddened by the lurid light? Or was it blood? Or, perchance, a liquid flame? Here ended the shape of evil Dippy's hand and prepared to lay the mark of baptism upon their foreheads that they might be partakers of the mystery of sin, more conscious of the secret guilt of others, both in deed and thought, than they could now be of their own. The husband cast one look at his pale wife, and faith at him. What polluted wretches would the next glance show them to each other, shuddering alike at what they disclosed and what they saw? Faith, faith, cried the husband, look up to heaven and resist the wicked one. Whether faith obeyed, he knew not. Hardly had he spoken when he found himself amid calm night and solitude, listening to a roar of the wind which died heavily away through the forest. He staggered against the rock and felt it chill and damp, while a hanging twig that had been all on fire besprinkled his cheek with the coldest dew. The next morning, young Goodman Brown came slowly into the street of Salem Village, staring around him like a bewildered man. The good old minister was taking a walk along the graveyard to get an appetite for breakfast and meditate his sermon and bestowed a blessing as he passed on Goodman Brown. He shrank from the venerable saint as if to avoid an anathema. Old Deacon Gookin was a domestic worship, and the holy words of his prayer were heard through the open window. What God doth the wizard pray to, quoth Goodman Brown. Goody Cloys, that excellent old Christian, stood in the early sunshine at her own lattice, catechizing a little girl who had brought her a pint of morning's milk. Goodman Brown snatched away the child as from the grasp of the fiend himself. Turning the corner by the meeting house, he spied the head of Faith with the pink ribbons, gazing anxiously forth, and bursting into such joy at sight of him that she skipped along the street and almost kissed her husband before the whole village. But Goodman Brown looked sternly and sadly into her face, and passed on without a greeting. Had Goodman Brown fallen asleep in the forest, and only dreamed a wild dream of a witch-meeting? Be it so, if you will. But alas, it was a dream of evil omen for young Goodman Brown, a stern a sad, a darkly meditative, a distrustful, if not a desperate man did he become from the night of that fearful dream. On the Sabbath day, when the congregation were singing a holy psalm, he could not listen because an anthem of sin rushed loudly upon his ear and drowned all the blessed strain. When the minister spoke from the pulpit with power and fervid eloquence and with his hand on the open Bible of all the sacred truths of our religion and of saint-like lives and triumphant deaths and of future bliss or misery unutterable, then did Goodman Brown turn pale, dreading lest the roof should thunder down upon the grey blasphemer and his hearers. Often, waking suddenly at midnight, he shrank from the bosom of faith, and at morning, or eventide, when the family knelt down at prayer, he scowled and muttered to himself, and gazed sternly at his wife, and turned away. And when he had lived long, and was borne to his grave a hoary corpse, followed by faith, an aged woman, and children, and grandchildren, a goodly procession besides neighbors not a few, they carved no hopeful verse upon his tombstone, for his dying hour was gloom. So that was Young Goodman Brown by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Now, it's quite a noisy morning out here. Lots of people wandering around, so I apologize for any external sounds. The seagulls aren't too noisy this morning but there's people getting in and out of cars and 
All the cars that drive past seem to be have terrible gearboxes, shot transmissions, you might say, in America. They're a terrible state. I just wish they could afford better cars where I live. Anyway, Nathaniel Hawthorne wasn't poor. He was born in 1804 in Salem, Massachusetts, and he died in Plymouth, New Hampshire, so he moved. The Hawthorns were an old New England family, an old Puritan family. They came uh, over, I think, in 1630 from England, and they were well-known figures in the colonial administration. So they were Puritans, anyway. One of his ancestors was John Haythorn, spelt without the W. And Hawthorne added the W to his name in his 20s, possibly because, well, who knows why, but possibly because he was ashamed about his ancestors, but maybe he just thought it was a bit cooler. Or maybe he thought it was actually etymologically more correct. Although I wonder if the name really does come from the Hawthorne. Anyway, so, yeah, so his ancestor, John Hawthorne, never repented of his role sentencing witches to death. Nathaniel Hawthorne. Remember, this is, you know, we tend to lump the past together. So we think, oh, wait, you know, far, that's not far from 1630. But it's a fair way, you know, it's a lot of ancestors. So when Hawthorne was interested in the, in the colonial past and the doings of his ancestors in Salem and roundabouts, and of course, this is what this story is about. He himself published his first novel, his first story, rather, in 1828, when he was 24. And he published a series of short stories. He, he wrote a number of novels, of which the most famous are The Scarlet Letter and The House of Seven Gables, which are justifiably well-received canons of American literature. His books often feature the themes of sin and the inherent evil of humanity, which brings us on to his religious persuasion. So he wasn't a Puritan, and he takes a few pot shots at Puritanism in his stories. He was a transcendentalist. Now, this was a early 19th century American movement. It was a kind of romanticism. And I think when we were previously talking about, actually, Lovecraft, we were talking about this division between the rationalist enlightenment view of the world and the romantic view. So let's just recap that a little. When we talk about Judeo-Christian tradition, you start off with a God who is outside the world. He created the world. It is his product, his creation. We are his creation, and he himself is outside the world. Okay, So that is the worldview that European culture inherited. And then we get to the Enlightenment, and it turns towards rationalism. And Isaac Newton, who in fact was an alchemist, but that's by the by. So he probably did believe in the living spirit of the world. But what happened, you have a world where God stands outside it, and then you get rid of God. So you've just got the world. And we move through an enlightenment, which we're still in the throes of, possibly the end of, whereby we see the universes working according to mechanistic, but purposeless rules. So we've got Richard Dawkins' selfish gene, and this whole kind of worldview whereby the, the universe is meaningless. Now, this leads to a real problem for humans because it makes us feel empty and disconnected. And it leads to all sorts of, you know, Jean-Paul Sartre's and existentialism and all that kind of thing. But movements throughout history that are trying to wreak it. This is the new age, I suppose, the environmental movement. It's all about the human spirit trying to reconnect with its ground, which is the universe. Okay, there we are. So romanticism comes out of this in the 18th century and then through, you know, Voltaire and Wordsworth and people like that. And what we see is inspiration. We are not apart from the universe. We are of the universe. For me, that's self-evident. We are not empty mechanisms without purpose. We partake in the life of the universe. So you have a mechanistic, rationalistic viewpoint which is about science and the machine, if you like, the empty machine, the, the, the blind clockmaker, I think that was one. That was Dawkins as well. So the clock works, nobody made it, according to rationalist scientists of science. And, but romanticism was about, no, the, the, this wellspring of life comes through us all, and this is where we should seek our inspiration. So that's what Hawthorne was. Hawthorne was of this persuasion and the transcendentalists were of this persuasion that inspiration and our connection is with the living. We may not understand it. We don't approach it through our 
rational thought, we approach it through our feelings and our intuition. Okay. Now, a further um, elaboration on this is that Hawthorne was what's called a dark romantic. So his view of romanticism is tainted, potentially due to the original sin doctrine of his Puritan ancestors, of which, I mean, New England, especially in 1804, would still have been heavily influenced by. And I think it is the Protestant view and Catholic view, I suppose, of original sin, that we are fallen, sinful beings. So he is a romantic, but he's, he believes in this. And so we get these stories that discuss the, the irredeemably fallen nature of mankind. So he abandons the promise of salvation of Christianity. It's Easter here, so I've possibly got that in my mind. But, you know, so he doesn't even have that. So here we have, we move on to this story, Young Goodman Brown, which is a lovely, well-crafted piece. We have, and this is, I've just been reading a book by Robert McKee. I maybe said that in one of the other ones, Story, which I've had for ages, which is a fantastic book. And I wish I read it years ago when I first bought it. But you know, you've probably got a big stack of books that you work your way through, like me. So dramatic irony is where we know more than character. So he is led along and we know the devil is his grandfather. He doesn't know that or it takes his grandfather's form. His grandfather and father whom he revered were fallen. All these people he meets who, who he reveres as great examples of Christian piety and sinlessness. The scales are removed from his eyes until his own dear wife, Faith, and her name is no coincidence. He says things throughout, you know, I think I've left my faith behind and stuff like that. So her name as Faith, I don't think is a coincidence. What his mission is in the story is not totally clear. He has to go out on this night of all nights, and whether this is Halloween or Walpurgisnacht or I think St. George's Night, when I've just been doing Dracula, that's a big thing. Similar night where evil is abroad, and this is the night you do deals with the devil. We don't know what he wants from the devil. He has misgivings about it, but what actually does he want? What particular task? And whether that's a plot hole, I don't know. Or maybe I've just missed it. But as he walks further and further, and then he takes the devil's staff, which is uh, symbolic of him becoming more hooked, by devilry, deviltry, as they say in this, which is a really good word. And then Goody Cloyes is the first one, Deacon Gookin, and these are all people he's looked up to and then not. And Faith at the very beginning says he wants him to stay home, and she says she hopes that he finds all well on his return, to which he replies, Amen. But of course, that is a foreshadowing that things may not. That's a bit of a signal for us as the listener to, to listen up. Okay, there you go. So. New England, Salem are a great resource for writers of this kind of story. I don't know if you saw, I think it was 2014, a movie called The Witch, set in backwards New England. And I recently put on the YouTube channel Behind the Stumps, which is Russell Kirk's story in New England. And of course, we've had Bewitched by Edith Wharton in New England, and we've got Lovecraft's um, New England. It's funny, isn't it? Different places have different resonances for populations. So I think. In the US, there are places like New England for this kind of thing. There's New Orleans, there's Sedona for the New Age. So there are certain hotspots, aren't there? And New England's certainly one of those. I thought it was very interesting, the picture he paints of these colonial times whereby the heathen wilds outside their towns, which may have even been stockaded in those times, it's very dangerous for them, it's unchristian. And you have this picture that it's still populated by um, Native Americans living in the full, the full glory of their, cl their culture still flourishing. You know, I'm an outsider, so I don't know, but I don't believe that lasted. Deals with the devil, of course, are popular stories. I did one of my own, the Bucastle Fairies, with sound effects. A similar theme to this, about a bad man. I've also done John Buchan's The Journey of Little Prophet, which is, again, the man who comes across the devil who tries to tempt him. And of course, you've got Goethe's Faust and Dr. Faustus is Christopher Marlowe's. Those are, those two stories, of course, are a little bit head and shoulders above, of course, Paradise Lost, Milton's Paradise Lost, whereby the devil, I think Kate Bush said, the devil is a charming man. And some stories manage to make the guy, there's a hint of it in this, I think, make the devil quite uh, amenable. And you think, oh, well, he's not so bad. But that's, that's, of course, his trick. Get you to, I don't know what he wants, really, your soul. 
don't know what he does with them, but he must do something with them. So there we are. Okay, that's that. Goodman Brown. Most of the stories I've been doing in the next few weeks are actually requests. So keep them coming in. People say, how do I find the stories? Well, read a lot of collections of anthologies of ghost stories rather than horror stories, although some of them are horror stories, but ghost anthologies. Some of them are quite old, some of them difficult to get and out of print. And then people suggest their favourites, and that's always a good way, isn't it? I was reading an article in the paper this morning about how our listening and watching on Netflix and YouTube, if you like this, you like this, which is very good. It does suggest things we would like, and it's getting very clever. But sometimes there's, there's a benefit from not randomness, but curation, which gives us things that other people have valued. So in a way, people recommending stories is a good thing. Now, the seagulls. There's been some comments of interest about the seagulls. The, the two from last year that I watched, they're herring gulls. They've come back. Now, next to them, on the chimney next to them, there's a pair of lesser black-backed gulls. And I always thought they were meaner than herring gulls, but in fact, the herring gulls beat them up the other day. And there's a kind of turf war going on. But I see this morning, there's one of them sitting on the chimney pot. The other must be out fishing. No, he's just gone off. So they have claimed that territory. And I guess they'll be laying soon. They get really, really noisy. They'll see the jackdaws and the, the pigeons. Uh, there's even the odd blackbird. But I notice the birds. Anyway, you all take care. It's a lovely day here. It's Easter Monday. Um, oh, he's come back. It's Easter Monday. Anyway, hope you're all well. More stories to come. Hi. I'm David Sweeney Bear, narrator and producer of Tales from the Vault, a hand-picked selection of creepy classics, weird tales, and short stories from the greatest authors of all time. Each story is an immersive audio experience brought to life for your listening pleasure. You can find the Tales from the Vault podcast at youtube.com slash dsbaudio. Also on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Or you can visit my website at dsbaudio.com.